The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. Make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Dr. Kahneman, I can't imagine anybody that is not familiar with probably your, I think, your most profound work. It's not your only work. You have lots and lots of work on this topic. But the concept of thinking fast and slow, I guess to start off, could you, how is it that you even got on a path to investigate writing what ultimately became this book? And... Um, when you're, when you've published it now, what, how did you feel about it in terms of, I'm, I'm, this, this really makes a lot of sense. And how did it affect how you think about your own intuition and decision-making? Well, uh, to begin with, the idea of system one and system two is not mine. And not only the idea, not mine are not mine. System one and system two was coined by uh, Keith Stanovich a long time ago. Hmm. And uh, and I, I adopted it. Actually, he uses other terms because there are problems with these terms, although I like them and I'll mention the problems right. uh, in a couple of minutes. My work from you know many, many years have been about intuitive thinking. And and with my colleague, Emma Sversky, we did a lot of work on sort of what is known as cognitive biases and mistakes that people make. Right. And there was a fair amount of opposition to it, uh, some, uh, some quite vocal, some fairly influential. And I realized, thinking about it, that the distinction between system one and system two uh, really helped me a lot with that controversy that what we had been studying were, uh, were ideas generated by system one automatically, quickly, without thinking intuitively, and that the work of our critics, which failed to confirm cognitive illusions, that's because they were falling on system two. They were giving cues to reasonable, to rational thinking, to deliberate reasoning, which we had not provided. So for me, that distinction helped organize the entire literature, and it made it clear what I had been studying to that point, which is primarily system one, and, and why my critics uh, had been successful in all sorts of demonstrations in which they showed that people do not exhibit the kind of biases we talked about. Mm -hmm. So that, that is really the story of how it began. Mm -hmm. And... And then if you wish, I can go Please, on and talk yes. about what yeah. they are. Yeah. Well, so system one and system two. System one is really the hero of that book. Uh, it's about system one primarily. Right. And, and the idea of the labeling of system one is really, and system two, is quite controversial in an interesting way. It's controversial because system one, I use that language quite deliberately, system one does things. System one works fast, it works automatically, it, it produces intuitive ideas. 
uh, it's an active agent. And system two is the careful one. System two is the scold. System two is the reasoning one, uh, the deliberate one, the, the one that works to produce ideas. So those we have those two characters, and it's the interplay between those two characters that is really what the... Now, this approach, the basic approach of the book, is a no-no for a psychologist, traditionally. And it's a no-no because psychology holds to a maxim, which is very sensible, that you shouldn't explain what a person is doing by invoking little persons inside that person's head and talking about what they are doing together or to each other. And I've deliberately violated that rule, and I violated it because it is natural for people to think of agents, and it's natural for people to develop an understanding of personalities, of what those agents are used to be doing, the traits they have, the intentions they have. And, and I played on that natural ability of people. Now, truly, much more careful language would be type one processes and type two processes. And type one processes, like system one, they're automatic, they're fast, they're effortless. There is, those are the main properties. They're often emotional, and type two processes are effortful and deliberate. Mm. Now, people think a lot more easily about agents than about types or categories. Mm. And it's a peculiarity of the mind, and I exploited it. In that book, and and that's why, by the way, uh, the only thing that people remember, typically from the book, uh, ten years later, was oh yes, there were those two systems, and and that is actually remembering a lot because you remember something about the personalities of these two systems, and you can label oh that that feels like system one, that feels like system two, and this is just a peculiarity of the human mind. Yeah. But do people other than psychologists react to um, changing no, it from time? Yeah, I don't no, think so. Okay. No, it's only among psychologists. You know, this is a this is a classic no uh, no, and and it's absolutely right because there are not two people inside our heads labeled system one and system two. In fact, even the word system isn't appropriate, and. Because, because really, they're types of, I mean, the reality, the careful language is correct. They're types of processes. And I just found a way of tying them all together yes. uh, by, by giving, by creating two agents and giving them personalities. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, it's not a great application, but this is what it reminds me of. If somebody's describing something, you know, I had a, a burning bush experience or a Damascus experience, or I've, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm breaking the rules to explain um, to the most people possible a way to tell a story to relate some idea. And I, I didn't have any hang up. In fact, it made complete sense to me that it would be called system one and, and system two. One of the things you said, and I, I probably have it in my notes here, but I wanted to touch on it now. First, a comment, my family 
before three weeks ago, a month ago, I knew you. My family didn't know you. Now they're sort of irritated at you. And you're welcome because they're irritated at you through me because if they've heard it once, they've heard it 500 times for me to try to illustrate this. This is how not smart people try to illustrate it. When I use the phrase of what's two times two? Well, that's your system one. What's 17 times 24? Ah, you had to think about it and you can't do a left-hand turn and you couldn't scratch something. You had to give all of your energy to that to get it right, huh? Or some version of that. I've been married 37 years. I may not make it 38. If my wife hears me, I got to come up with a better phrase than that. So I'm going to work on it. I'll ask chat GPT to give me a better phrase. I thought it was funny, but you called system two in previous discussions, lazy. Why? Why is system two lazy? And I'm, I just may use this as an excerpt from our conversation. Well, I call system too lazy because when you look at, at behavior, behavior is governed by a law of least effort. When sure. there are several ways of doing things, you know, this is very clear in the way our body moves. When you pick up something, you take the best way are trained to do it in the least effortful way possible. And... This is also true of mental effort. When there are several ways of doing something, we tend to the least effortful way. Right. And it's that preference for the least effortful way of doing things that I call being lazy. Mm. And the manifestation of being lazy is really not checking. Mm. It's allowing, I mean, it's always in my terminology, it's always system sure. two when you speak when you say something, uh, system two is involved in the production of what you say. Mm. But did system two, and I'll use that, that language, did it check what system two, what system one offered it? Did it check the suggestion? And, you know, the, the best example and the dominant example today in this line of work mm -hmm. was done by, by a former postdoc and friend of mine, Shane Frederick. It's known as the bat and ball problem. I don't know if you, I think it's in the book. Mm -hmm. and, and it's this, a bat and a ball together cost a dollar 10. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? And now, The answer is not 10 cents. The answer is five cents. Mm -hmm. But what happens is you there is an immediate association. That's the beauty of that problem. It's mm -hmm. an extraordinarily diagnostic problem mm -hmm. in terms of what it predicts. It predicts all sorts of things in life. It's very good to, to right. pass that one. It's not awful not to pass it because most people don't. But people who do pass it the first time that's a very good sign for their yeah. intellect. Uh, you have that immediate association. Now you could easily check it. You know, if the ball is 10 cents, then the bat is a dollar and 10 cents, and that adds up to $1.20, not to $1.10. So right. you could tell by a very small effort of checking that you were wrong, that that's right. not the correct answer. Now, in Shane Frederick's work, 50% roughly of students at Harvard failed that item. <laughs> I that failed that. That, they, <laughs> that, 
don't blame yourself. <laughs> Almost everybody, yeah. I mean, a large majority of sure. people fail it. Yeah. Well, you so, ask it with such a friendly way. I didn't know that it was a, I should know when a psychologist asks with a smile and a straightforward question to slow down and double check and not just let my brain run because they're testing something. And I get them right on occasion. But when I first heard this in a different discussion, I think I was driving and it, so I kept trying to do the math. Wait, what? And then you explained it. I literally had to sit down with a piece of paper to prove you wrong. I just started laughing like, you're such a knucklehead. You can design complex electrical computer data systems that help power the digital infrastructure of the world, and you can't buy a bat with the correct amount of money. It was so funny and humbling. And yeah. uh, But anyway, sorry to interrupt, but it's a beautiful uh, story or riddle. It and it's the best example I know of the interaction between system one and system two and what it means to say that system two is lazy. Mm. In this instance, not checking is lazy. Right. And, and most people are. So that's why uh, I, yeah. I use that phrase. Um, you said this before, there's no magic in intuition. Can we maybe start off with how do human beings get intuition? And what did you mean by there's no magic in intuition? Well, um, you know, we live on intuition just about all the time. Right. That is, intuition is uh, an idea or an interpretation of your environment comes to you. And it comes with a sense of certainty and of reality. Right. And... Uh, like the answer 10 cents came to you, that's intuitive thinking. Right. This is, and most of the time, this is how we think. Reasoning, you know, memorizing, deliberate memory search, deliberate construction, those are really exceptions. Most mm. of life is conducted almost effortlessly, you know, mm. almost without mental effort. So that's, that's the, the basic part. Now, where was I going with that? I don't remember. So <laughs> well, remind me of the question. Yeah, well, I'm curious. How do human beings get intuition? And so I would get that, yeah. for example, if I make a, I don't know if a sharp noise is the right thing with a kid, but let's just say a child's two or three years old. Um, I think you talked about this, like with very little input, they can come into an experience and something, something that seems like magic, and you say it's not magic, like, I have a sense that somebody's angry, or there's an emotional, and I may not have ever experienced it before, or some limited way, but I have, I have an intuition, now it gets developed over time, for sure, accurately or inaccurately, but I'm curious if you could help us understand yeah. how we get it and evolve it, and why you don't think it's magic. Well, uh, I studied intuition for several years, uh, with somebody who is a great believer in intuition, and I'm a skeptic. Yeah. I mean, I, my main work with Amos Tversky was showing errors of intuitive thinking. Right. Uh, this fellow, Gary Klein, uh, he is the guru of a movement, really, that's called natural decision-making. <clears throat> and, and basically, they hate everything I do. Uh, <laughs> that is, they, they believe in... They believe in um, almost unquestioningly in the power of intuition. Right. So I, I, 
I quite like Gary's work. It wasn't, it's not reciprocal. He doesn't right. like mine, but I like his. Yeah. He studies experts and the intuitions of experts, like firefighters who know when something is dangerous, like physicians who sometimes can make a diagnosis across the room, that kind of thing. So I invited Gary to think together uh, about when can you trust intuition and when can't you? And it took us six years of fairly strong agreements to A, become friends, which we did, and B, we published an article that was called A Failure to Disagree. <laughs> and we reached the conclusions, we analyzed the conditions under which correct intuitions develop. And there are three conditions. And the first one is that there is a regularity in the world that, it, that can be learned. And the connection between angry faces and angry voices and unpleasant behavior, that is something with which it's, there are regularities in the world about this right. that can be picked up. This, and what you need is a lot of experience with those regularities so that you need a lot of opportunities to learn them. And then for learning to be effective, you need immediate feedback on your intuitions as they develop. Mm. So for example, recognizing angry faces, you know, a child of three, three years of age has had a lot of experience with angry faces right. and with what follows and what follows is generally unpleasant. So what that, that satisfies all three conditions. Mm -hmm. There is a regularity in the world. There is an opportunity to learn it, a lot of opportunities, mm -hmm. and feedback is fairly immediate. Mm -hmm. Same thing with chess players. Chess players play, you know, for, I don't know whether it's 10,000 hours mm -hmm. or more or less, but they play a lot. Mm -hmm. There are regularities in chess. They're complex regularities, but they exist and they can be picked up by talented people. And the feedback is fairly rapid. So you get to the point that a chess expert, a chess master, looks at a position of a chess game and says mate in three without actually knowing what the moves are. If asked to explain, he or she will produce the moves. But mate in three comes to their mind immediately. Right. That's intuition. It, it for one, I started laughing because uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if you have uh, children. I don't remember double checking. I have three daughters. I'm one of five. And I can tell you, I'm the oldest of five. Uh, at three years old, probably at two years old, I was what they called a difficult child. And so I'm certain I had more than intuition, lots of uh, experience in that space. And then I joined the army to escape authority. I joined airborne infantry. And so I got even more experience in intuition and what wall-to-wall -wall counseling meant. I could be a case study for that. But I, so it sounds like what you're describing is we have to be very much as people 
sensing and very much involved in the world around us, um, for some or all of our senses to be gathering this information. Oh, that this feels good. Oh, that's I don't want that outcome again. And over time, instead of thinking about it, it becomes intuition. Um, so, is that, as you're explaining, is that a right understanding of that? Yes, I think that. But what eventually uh, you recognize is the distinction between what is familiar, what is normal, and what's abnormal. Mm. And so we go through the world, and if things are normal, uh, we we react very little. And that all of that is, in my terms, or in Keith Stanovich's terms, it's system one. Right. It doesn't take any reflection. When you encounter an abnormal event, a deviation from what would be expected under the circumstances, usually system two comes into play. Right. And you stop, you pause, you check, you do something. And that's true for animals. It was mm-hmm. really first studied in dogs under the label of the orienting reflex. That is when there is a sound, the dog tenses, turns, you know, the head toward the sound, and a variety of physiological changes occur in the dog. Very similar things happen to us. And the, when, it, when a sudden sound occurs, which is unexpected, and under many other circumstances. Yeah. How often in your studies do we get, this is probably too big of a question, but is there a percentage of we get it right versus we get it wrong? And and I guess that would be, depend upon my intuition around the familiar as a as a as opposed to my intuition around the unfamiliar. Well, uh, or am I on the wrong track? I, well, I don't think you can compute percentages mm-hmm. because everything that you do through your day you haven't been surprised a lot today. And we're having our first conversation. Right. Uh, There haven't been any, you know, we've quickly learned to expect things. We we have a sense of each other. Now, you could say a word that would throw me. You could say an obscenity. I don't expect that from you. Right. Something would happen. If you violate that kind of vague, expectations of what is normal for you, right. which I set up what is normal for a podcast. And, right. and I, I adjusted that what is normal for you personally, because you're not like right. every podcaster. This is the way it works. Most of it is intuitive. Mm-hmm. Almost all of it. If you, the problems that we created and the problems that the book is about very largely are exceptional problems. Mm. They're exceptional because they are constructed to be difficult. And they are sometimes constructed to be deceptively easy, like the bat and ball problem. Now, there are many situations in the world which are deceptively easy. And we attempt to... Now, these conditions that are deceptively easy, they're a minority. You know, most of the time, the world is normal. Sometimes it will be abnormal. And and sometimes it will be abnormal and you won't notice it. 
because you're not thinking properly or because you're not mobilizing system two to check something. So yeah. that's that's why I cannot give you an answer in percentages. But if I were to give you an answer, it would be almost always. Almost always we're wrong? Almost always intuitive and almost always right. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, as we're having this conversation, and as I've listened to you before, we can't help but I do this in my personal, my, my daughter was yelling at me uh, at something the other day, uh, not yelling, but disagreeing with me. And I kept trying to explain to her, honey, that's the outlier. That's not the, this is not the normal behavior of the human beings around you and this thing that she was reacting to. She'd be even more furious if I said what it was on here. So I'm not going to do that. But when we talk about intuition, uh, it reminds me of uh, the movie Sully with Captain Sullivan that had the double bird strike, took out all the things. He had spent decades. So when you describe system one and system two, where my brain immediately went was as a kid from Southern California with no weapon experience, with no... um, organizational experience. The army received me, put me through training, did, uh, you know, set parameters for me. And the way that I moved from uh, unproductive to productive was drills. We drilled and we drilled and we drilled as simple as if they yelled out a command and formation, I knew exactly what stance to do. I didn't even think about it. I just did it. Whereas in the first six weeks, I didn't know what, who did I salute? Who did I, you know, all of these other things. So we, we drilled on that. Captain Sully, probably like all pilots, went through an unimaginable number of hours in the simulation. But they never exactly simulated the, the circumstances that he had exactly. And when he managed to land the plane, following his intuition is the way I understand it. And then they tried to recreate it in the simulation. And it didn't work that way. Is that too much of an outlier? Or is that a, how would that impact no, that, this conversation? That, that is expert intuition at its best. Mm. And part of the experience and the reason that he managed to do what he did was that he had been a glider. And there is a beautiful moment that I remember from from the time, from the Mm -hmm. incident, just before landing in the water, he adjusted the the attitude of the plane in a way that landers do. Just soft. So, and I'm sure he didn't plan that, that his hands did it. Right. And so that's that's expert intuition. This is what Klein studies, okay. and this is what he admires. And I join him in admiring it. And it does exist. It's not as frequent as errors like the bat and ball error, right. but it, expert intuition definitely exists, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, can we, before I dive into talking about technology... Uh, some of the modern technology stuff. H- how do humans improve? Can intuition help us improve our decision making so that, um, you know, if we're 80% right intuitively, we can get it to a higher, I know you don't work in percentages or whatever, but, um, yeah. it, it, or is it just, you're just sort of hopelessly, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a bell curve and you sort of get to the top of that and you're going to, hover around here till you begin to lose cognitive abilities? I think 
the way that we think mm-hmm. uh, about about significant decisions mm-hmm. that say uh, a CEO makes right. CEO makes a lot of decisions a right. few of them are really important decisions and CEOs quite often pride themselves on trusting their gut on right. making intuitive decisions some presidents have prided themselves uh, yes, and, unfortunately uh, unfortunately in in that way but actually our recommendation is when you face an important decision especially a one-off decision don't trust your intuition right slow down make yourself think deliberately analyze the options uh, we do not advocate improving your intuitions because that's impossible yeah. that involves so much experience that no CEO in a single lifetime will have the experience needed to make intuitive decisions yeah. uh, in, intuitive important decisions uh, on on sort of half unique or unique situations this by the <clears throat> this by the way leads directly to through AI, mm. if you want to talk yes, about Yes, please, yes. Well, you see, <clears throat> one of the characteristics of AI is that it acquires experience, but it can acquire experience in a distributed way. Mm. So that if you have a million self-driving cars, or even not self-driving cars, you know, assistant car driving... If you have a million cars and they are having experiences, all those experiences are learned by one system. <clears throat> and that gives the AI an advantage over people that cannot be overcome. So there will be a time when the AIs will have so much experience observing business decisions and their outcomes, that they will develop the equivalent of intuition. This is what chat GPT is more like system one than like system two. It's actually almost deliberately modeled after system one and some uh, uh, one of the leaders in that field, Benjo, has actually explicitly compared it to system one. Mm. But the big advantage is that AI acquires experience in a way that is completely impossible for a single individual to do. Mm. And that gives it a huge advantage in learning the environment. And that is why AI is going to do better than the best people and than the best experts in many domains in a relatively short time. It, I remember not too long ago, we thought it could get there with chess. We were certain it could not get there with something like Go. And this has been discussed many, many times. I don't, I don't want to belabor it. When it did, um, I, think, I think computer scientists and AI scientists had Every expectation. They didn't know when, but every expectation that threshold would be breached. 
But when I listened to at the time of the conversations, not now, but at the time of the conversations, the go experts and people similar in that world said, no way. It's just too many, too many complications. And and now, well, of course, they lament you can never play a, a system again. They'll, you know, you'll you'll never win. And this is a beautiful example of of what I was saying earlier, the opportunity that AI has that right. people don't. Alpha, AlphaGo was developed by taking a system and giving it, the constraining it to the rules of the game, nothing else. And then it started playing against itself. Mm. And it played against itself millions of times, which no Go player right. uh, can. It plays itself millions of times, a very fast computers working for hours. And eventually it acquired experience, so much experience that it could beat the world champion and discover new rules of Go. And now the world experts in Go study computer games. Right. As chess players have been doing, uh, you know, for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. They, um, I don't play video games very often anymore. I prefer board games. So I like to be sitting across the table when my opponents start crying. Um, but they, uh, when I did play them, we had this thing that the dreaded word called a bot, a B-O-T, a bot. And so the way that that would work in these games, they're called first person shooters. So you would be a, you'd be a mercenary and you've got to kill all the zombies in the map and you're running down the hall and um, a player like me would run in. If I saw the monster, I would attack the monster and hopefully eliminate the monster. And I'd keep going. And I could only get probably to about a 60% success rate because eventually there are just too many and they get, um, you're not twitchy enough or accurate enough or whatever. And then I was watching usually people younger than me. And as they went through the map, they didn't wait to see the monster. They knew as they ran through the corridor, they just reached to the right. And by the way, these are randomly spawning. They didn't necessarily start there. They just so knew the map. And in their intuition, they knew if there's going to be monsters in here, they're going to be in that corridor. And I'm not going to wait. I'm already shooting my rocket or dropping my thing or jumping over the whatever before I see them. Because of course, it's where they're going to be. Then bots come along. And the bots learn faster, react quicker, and don't forget, as a human being, I've, you know, if I'm a kid, I got chores to do and I'm sleep deprived or whatever. And these bots would show up and people stop playing the games after a while because I don't mind matching myself against another human, even somebody with expert intuition. But the bots were so fast that if all things were equal, they could beat me every single time. And now it's just not fun. You know, I don't want my robot to play your robot out on a football pitch or something like that. I want humans with their frailties, expertise, but, but you know, the, the frailties that they bring. Um, I'm curious with that as a background. How, so what do you think then the world, if we become this cyborg interaction of some combination of us and AI, do we lose intuition? Do we become 100% intuitive because we're with this AI avatar? What does that look like? Well, uh, in the first place, I'll note something. That sure. Interest in chess and the amount, the number of people playing chess has not decreased 
after the victories of computers over people has increased. Mm. I mean, the game has become more interesting. The most beautiful games of chess I've ever seen were between AlphaGo and, and I forget what, uh, the leading uh, chess other, master. Uh, chess, no, chess, chess program. Oh, oh, okay. There were both programs that okay. could easily beat the world champion. Right. But one of them, AlphaGo, was way better than the other. And the games are extremely beautiful. And you watch them and you'd be sure that they are created because there is no other words right. to express the, the beauty, the planning, the elegance of the play that those computers develop with them, an enormous amount of experience. Right. Now, you ask what's going to happen. And, and of course, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have I mean, an opinion. It's, it's, I have opinion in, on a limited number of okay. issues. I have a firm opinion that there is nothing that people can do that computers cannot do. Okay. And that includes emotional intelligence. In fact, I think emotional intelligence is easy for computers to pick up. Wow. Because if they pick up, if they listen to a million conversations and to the development mm. and listen to the tone of voice, right? they will know earlier than any human can that, that something is going bad. Yeah. Because they'll have vastly more experience than any human. Right. So that's that's my main, you know, the most important opinion. That's an issue on which humans are quite defensive. And, and you know, very sensible and reasonable people say, well, there is something unique about about humans. Well, what may be unique is in part their frailty. Right. Uh, you know, the, but in terms of competition, it's not, it's going to be no contest. Mm. Now, interest, it's a pleasure. When physicians see diagnostic, you know, diagnostic aid, that is listening in real time to what the patient says and is reaching a diagnosis more precisely than the patient does, than the physician does. What that will do to physicians, I don't know, but it's right. going to be difficult. This is coming. Yeah. I mean, this is a matter of a few years. Well, I hope it comes soon because even though I've been married for a very long time, and I would like to say I have expert opinion around the CEO of my house. She seems to have pretty good intuition about me, mostly because there's really only three things I ever care about. And she's got very good intuition around my daughters who are in their 20s, of which I have no clue from moment to moment what's going on. But if I had somebody like Alfred from Batman, like an avatar like that, who is reading their respiratory rate, their dilation of their pupils, has some experience, walks in, scans the kitchen and notices that there's two glasses less in the wine bottle than like, like, bam, can take in a scene and whisper in my ear, almost like uh, Jarvis and Iron Man. Hey, 
tread carefully. Back out slowly, shut the door, get to the store, and bring home a gift. That would, that's going to, maybe not win you one and two, but it will keep you out of three. So do that. That would be uh, wonderful. I think, I think that scenario is not impossible. In fact, I think it's quite likely. That is, we will have, uh, you know, we will have an advisor talking to us. Right. And saying things like, take it easy. Right. Uh, or slow down. <laughs> uh, that's, that's going to happen because all it takes is collecting big data. Right. So once you have robots in the home with which can see what's going on and right. can hear what's going on. They will acquire a vast amount of experience and they'll be able to do things like that. Right. If you, you know, to warn you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, warning. I like that. You. That's a, that's a good way to phrase it to warn you. Yes. And maybe if they get really sophisticated, I can just push a button and say, all right, uh, Jarvis, you want to handle this answer? Because my emotion might get, but here's what, I guess my question, I wasn't going to, I don't have this on my list, but just from this conversation, you st stimulate me. Do you remember, um, did you ever watch some, when I was a kid, my dad, who was not into comedy very much, would love these shows like a Dean Martin roast or something where you had a Don Rickles or a Jonathan Winters or whatever, and they come up and they would, they would um, jokingly, but with sarcasm, pick on whoever the host uh, was, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. It didn't, it didn't matter, right? Did you ever see those when they were popular years ago? Not really. <laughs> well, they're very funny, they're, very sarcastic. Yeah. And, you know, to their credit, they didn't use vulgarity or whatever. They certainly used innuendo, but they're pro people. When you were describing the chess match the, the, between AlphaGo and the, one of the great chess programs, I'm wondering, and the beauty in it, I saw beauty in um, in these two great comedic, or even a Joan Rivers, these great comedic geniuses within boundaries sort of doing their um, humorous that left the audience in tears and kind of their back and forth with each other. What you described to me almost means like I get my Alexa arguing with Siri and am I as entertained? Well, I think it's as beautiful to hear these two, you know, ChatGPT arguing with Google's Bard, um, and 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 maybe maybe it's beautiful enough or elegant enough or the art is interesting enough. But I I have yet to experience what you described. But maybe that's the norm in the future is seeing things like that. I mean, uh, my sense is that this is coming. Yeah. And it's coming faster than people expect. I mean, uh, computer scientists have been surprised by, by the developments of the last five years. Right? Altogether, modern AI is 11 years old. Things <laughs> started in 2012, uh, the, the major new development. Right. And the progress has been amazing in yeah. terms of speed. And people, you know, the, the consensus among computer scientists, when AlphaGo beat the Go master, was that it would take another 10 years for that milestone to be reached. Right. ChatGPT, Jeff Hinton, who is the guru of that entire 
right. intellectual community. He said he was surprised by the large language models. He was expecting things like that maybe in 30 years. Right. And this is a person who, you know, is revered for how forward-looking he is in his thinking. Yeah. So there is a thing that one of futurists, Kurzweil, uh, talks about it, and this is exponential growth. Uh-huh. That is where something not only grows, but it grows faster and faster. Right. And, and even its speed increases faster and faster. This is where we are. I mean, we are in some aspects of technology. The growth seems to be currently exponential. Now, this has to stop at some point, sure. level off at some point. But we are in a period of extraordinarily rapid change. Yeah, we we I'm in the data center business. I mean, it all that growth is computer systems and they live in our we what we used to think was a hockey stick of growth for the last 15 years. We've realized is a lap pool compared to the tsunami that is pressing upon us in every way. People, our most valuable resource, all the infrastructure. And on top of that comes, uh, and this isn't a conversation about that. Uh, I want to move on to something else, but just by reflection, how do we manage power? Not just how do we get it? How do we manage it? We got to keep this planet in a particular condition so we can't burn it down with power. How do we manage the liquid with the water resource? Like it is, and guess what? We're using AI to help us figure out <laughs> what's the most efficient way to build, deploy, operate, and decommission these environments. Uh, this is going to happen. Right. One of the leading figures in AI, Demis Asabis, mm-hmm. who leads DeepMind, his ambition, I think since he was very young, was to solve the problem of energy, of low-cost clean energy. Right. And he thinks AI will solve it. Oh, I'm sure it will help if and not solve it. And the motto of his company was solve intelligence and then solve everything else. That is, yeah. if you have a super intelligence going at a problem, then it will do things that humans cannot do. They proved it with some, you know, they can fold proteins. It right. seems to be something that's hugely important and was considered impossible. Yeah. And it happened a year or two ago. Yeah, we just had Christine King on from the Idaho National Lab. She's a director there. And we spent some time talking about fusion at a different uh, national lab. And it's fascinating. I want to ask you this question. I wrote it down um, because I love this. And it says, subjective confidence is not based on a judgment. It's based on a feeling or confidence based on a coherent story. You could be very confident for little reason. So here's my question. Can this be dangerous if the story we get from something like a generative AI, a chat GPT or Bard or Bing or whoever's, can it be story, can it be dangerous if the story we get from one of these tools inspires confidence in us, but it's wrong because it can be wrong so quick. It can be so confident, inspiring, um, and the power of it is, you know, we react to it in s- such a quick uh, manner that um, before we realize it isn't, whether it is uh, a story about somebody or make a decision or bet it all on red or whatever it is. First of all, do you, did, I, did I capture that correctly, that we, that we 
many times get confidence in our decision based upon a compelling story, not whether the story is correct, but just that it's compelling. And do you think we can have these distributed systems, these AI tools, can they be susceptible to this as well? Well, uh, one of the things that are remarkable when you look at uh, at GPT products is that thing seems very confident. You know, it it talks confidently. And we know that it's wrong a fair amount of the time. Now, this is going to be to improve over time. Sure. But one thing that is also clear is that this is going to be used on a massive scale by agents with bad intentions. Sure. And it's going to be used so that you'll get messages that appear to be real, that appear to be true, and are in fact fabricated to manipulate you. This is going to be happening, I think, in the in this election cycle. Mm. We're going to see it happen. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not saying ChatGPT gets it wrong sometimes, but in my research, you're the 1964 bronze medalist in ping pong. So if that's not accurate, we need to uh, submit a note to somebody. But you did look good in 64. You look very capable in the picture that it generated f- for me. So um, let me ask you this. Uh, I have a question about potential risks of using AI. We just, <laughs> just you just hit that. But I'm. do you ever... Th- Think about. I know you've talked about mindfulness, well-being. It is. What do you think? I don't know how to ask this, but I I'm, I try to ask. I had Dr. Paul Root Wolpe from Emory. He's head of ethic ethics at Emory. He was the first uh, director of ethics at NASA. Really capable guy. He's very pro these tools, hundred percent. But he is a skeptic, cautious person. And when he talks about ethic, he doesn't mean he doesn't usually pose a question, is it right or wrong to steal? Does it, is it right or wrong to lie? His questions are more, as we use tools in particular, if you have an autonomous vehicle and it has to make a decision, we're given this vehicle agency to make a decision and their consequences yeah. to human life and limb, either decision that it makes, what is the ethical decision. This is kind of a lazy, low-hanging one. But as you think about the systems that you have done all of your research in, and now they're colliding with these amazing tools that we're interacting with, where does ethic come into this? Oh, uh, that is... And we only have about 20 more minutes, so... (laughs) That is a more complicated problem than then I know how to deal with it. Okay. I mean, ethics, but clearly it's a problem that we need a solution and lots of people are working on right. the ethics of, of autonomous driving because they frequently, I mean, occasionally will have to make those, yeah. those decisions about whether to crash yourself or to kill somebody else or, right. or whatever, and you'll want them to do what will appear to be the ethical thing. Right. So, and it's it's a very interesting task because it involves, it requires foreseeing the whole range of possibilities. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and having a system that provides in every situation an answer that most people would consider 
right. fair, reasonable, or ethical. Huge problem. He, I don't want to put words in his mouth. This is my, how I understand it. So, Doctor Wolpe, please don't. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to publicly correct if I get this wrong. But he would pose sort of these ideas. <clears throat> Actually, let me first give you a second scenario. His main thing is we give agency to machines or tools that today we reserve for humans. For example, he said, on the one hand, we're creating devices. Actually, they're already created. We're, we're enhancing and supplementing and adding to the arsenal devices of war that go out into a combat zone. He said, the advantage of that is that system doesn't get afraid. So if somebody comes around the corner and startles them, it doesn't uh, emotionally react and shoot a mother and her two children or whatever. Some, some you can imagine the scenarios where I'm not startled, I'm not afraid, I go into a building or I'm patrolling an area and something pops up or I'm not afraid to go investigate further because I'm not worried about my life or limb or my hopes and dreams. I'm, I'm a machine doing my thing. But I've also given that machine that if some set of parameters happen, take a life. Maybe restrain. You know, there may be a graduating degree of from um, disabled to termination, whatever that is. But that's happening today, and certainly if it's not happening in the West, it's happening in places uh, not the West. They're developing these systems, and some of them have been deployed. And he said, "How do we get comfortable as human beings giving agency?" Not just to systems on how it docks the big cruise liner or lands the airplane or drives the vehicle. And beyond a reasonable doubt, some majority of our population say it made a decision in an unusual circumstance and it, and it did a calculation that said, this is the best thing for me to save human life. But if we're giving an agency out into the battlefield. And so that sort of, as he thinks about ethics and is asking us to consider as we move in with these tools, to me, I think then about your work in intuition. How do I give machines enough information over time that's not biased? So we have to protect uh, them from bias and misinformation so that they can make these things. And this is where, this is almost one of these days, Lex Friedman's going to talk about this, who is my favorite podcaster, by the way, far and away, to have these conversations either with Dr. Kellis or if you go back on or some of these other folks about this philosophical thing of, as we're giving these tools, which we can see are valuable and are going to interact with us, how do we protect them from the misinformation so that as they act in an ethical manner, they're not acting in a way that is um, the majority of us would disagree with their behavior? I mean, there is a major problem here, which is that you cannot anticipate the behavior of complex systems. Right. So when when you have an AI, in order for it to learn, it has to have a definition of success, of what it means to achieve a desirable outcome. And right. then it gives itself points when it achieves a desirable outcome, and that guides further learning. Right. What the risk that experts talk about is what can happen when the machine, the super intelligent device, finds a way of earning points that the humans have not anticipated. And, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, suppose you had an AI that was intended, given the mission of eliminate climate change. 
that AI could decide to eliminate humanity because right. humanity is a major cause of climate change. That's if right. you hadn't thought of that possibility, <laughs> you might not be able to block it. Right. So that's the kind of, when people talk of the existential risks of AI, right. that's what they have in mind. He said, Dr. Wolpe used cancer. He's like, give it this thing. And if the parameters aren't right, it may just say, okay, burp. Now it's just yeah. machines. And then it, because it has emotional, uh, you know, it's got EQ, it's sad, quote unquote, because it can't, we're the people I'm trying to get rewarded by, you know. It's, um, well, let me ask you this. I know we're coming up on time. What advice would you give to people who want to navigate the complexities of the modern world we've been talking about? They under, they read your book, they get this really interesting, um, and your follow-up uh, work after that, they, they get this in their brain, they begin thinking about it, and they're operating in this world of artificial intelligence and new tools. And and even some are arguing, hey, let's extend this into the virtual world. For So, so far, we're still talking about maybe an augmented physical world, but we're still talking about the physical world. And uh, Mr. Kurzweil and Mr. Zuckerberg and a whole bunch of other people are really interested in um, this sort of cyborg version of us or sim singularity version of us going into um, uh, you know, the metaverse. How, what advice would you give to people if you're back at Princeton or you're out on the road um, having a conversation to help them to navigate through this world? Um, I'll just stop there. What, what advice would uh, you give? We, thinking fast and slow was quite deliberately and explicitly not a prescriptive book. Right. It didn't give advice. Uh, I, put, I wrote a book with two colleagues that was published a couple of years ago, and its title is Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Okay. And that book is actually quite prescriptive. Okay. And the advice I would give is in that book. So, okay. Uh, we'll direct them to it. The, and our thoughts is that actually AI and, you know, the, will take over many functions yeah. and there's no way to stop it. But for the foreseeable future, uh, which is not very long, but for the foreseeable future, humans will make the more important decisions. Right. And it's important for humans to make good decisions. So there we have some advice. And the advice, by the way, is not primarily directed at individuals, because I'm not very optimistic about the prospects of helping individuals control when they react to system one and when they react to system two. Right. So the advice is to organizations, mm. how they can improve their procedures to generate better decisions. Yeah. And... I won't elaborate what the what the advice is. It's, uh, but but there is some. It's not going to solve the problem. It's not going to tell people how to make decisions. Right. But if it can avoid, you know, two percent of mistakes that would otherwise be made, it would be a huge success. Can you imagine a time when the board is is in a room with the C suite, and they're discussing? <clears throat> Something of some consequence, I suppose, you know, 
And just like the old, I don't know if you ever saw the old Star Trek shows, they would walk into uh, basically a holodeck and they'd slap their shirt and say, computer, give me the distance to that. You know, they're talking to uh, basically early Alexis, Alexa. Um, I'm glad I don't have Alexa in here or things would be turning off and on. But anyway, that, that maybe at some point, if not even now, they have their own even private chat GPT, like something that's built within their industry and with their system. And so they've got um, really strong controls around bias and misinformation. And, and they've got this thing that's evolved or maybe even multiple things. And they come in, I don't know about as a consultant, but as another seat at the table to hear the discussion and weigh in on why they should or shouldn't take some action and what the consequences could or, or might be. I think this is coming. Yeah. I think the very interesting, uh, that's, that's one of the most interesting questions that I wish I could have been around to see uh, how it's resolved, but, but it's not going to happen in my lifetime. How will the board when it asked, say, GPT-7 to give an answer to its problems, when it knows that GPT is smarter than it is, right? What will it do? How will it decide to over, you know, to ignore the advice of GPT-7? Right. And on the other hand, what I would expect to happen is that there will be enormous resistance to let GPT-7 in so that leaders are going to feel threatened by, and this is, you know, when AI's business and can evaluate business decisions better than people, uh, CEOs are going to have a very interesting problem. Yeah, remaining CEO. Why not just have the avatar do it? I mean, that's the, we have a, we have a number of things ahead of us. Well, Dr. Kahneman, I want to honor our time. I can't even tell you how much of a joy it has been. What are you working on? What are the big things you keep saying in my lifetime? We're going to wish you another 40 years. So in the near term, you, I know um, recently you've talked about you're working on some projects. What, what are you, uh, what are you in the middle of now? Well, that you can share. A project on, we're completing a project essentially on the bat and ball problem. Okay. But, you know, my, my research career is behind me. I'm playing with research at the moment. But, uh, you know, yeah. one has to know when it's over, and it's yeah. over. Yeah. Dr. Kahneman, thank you so much for coming on the QTS experience. I really appreciate it. And if our audience has enjoyed the conversation, like it. And if you loved it, subscribe it subscribe to the channel. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care.